It's a gas, gas, gas. Welcome to Let's Talk Property with Heather Hilda Darling, sponsored by Callaway's Estate Agents. So in those immortal sounds of the Rolling Stones, but it's all right now, in fact, it's a, ga it's a gas, or is it? Can you imagine a world without pollution where the sky is permanently blue, no wisps or belches of smoke from factories or car exhausts, what can we do as a nation to improve our environment, homes, health, and ultimately our lives? Are we Brits getting to grips with the rise of sustainable living and carbon neutral targets? When Energy and Clean Growth Minister Chris Skidmore signed legislation in June 2019 to commit the UK to a legally binding target of net zero emissions by 2050, did this have any impact on us? Do we want carbon neutral as long as it doesn't affect us personally? Or are we so dismissive of this problem that we turn a blind eye? I've got some great guests today again. Uh, my special guest is Martin Bridges of Worcester Bosch. Hello, Martin. Hi, Heather. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And I've got my co host James Duffy, known as the Compliance Guru, again from Callaway's Estate Agents. Now, Martin is Director of Technical Communication and Product Management. That's a bit of a mouthful, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know you've got a lot of experience behind you. So just, I'd just like to sort of introduce you, first of all. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your family to start with. Uh, right, well, I'm uh, fast approaching the, the dreaded 60. I'm 58, uh, and I live in just outside of Worcestershire with my wife and two young sons. Uh, we, we started late in life. We've got a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old son. Uh, so life's busy and awkward at the moment, of course, with these uh, restrictions upon us. I've been in the heating industry for all of my life. I left school just before I was 16, just late, two months before I was 16. So I've been in the industry 42 years and I, I don't really know anything else. Uh, and uh, I thoroughly enjoy it, otherwise I would have got out. Um, but yeah, that's probably in a nutshell. There's more to say, but that probably is an opening <laughs> gambit. That's about yeah. me. <laughs> so you live near Worcester. This is where the famous Worcester sauce was made, wasn't it? Indeed, yeah. It's probably best known for that. And Worcester Porcelain, of course. And Worcester Porcelain, exactly, yes. So that's uh, um, somewhere where I've never been. I mean, is it somewhere for a day trip or would you would you suggest a longer, perhaps a long weekend or something? Yeah, a long weekend would be lovely. It's very rural. Uh, mm -hmm. Worcester City itself is rather nice, very period properties everywhere. It's a large county, you know, there's a lot to see all around it. Uh, but yes, it's uh, it's not. I guess most cities without a, a, a top class football team are, are not perhaps as memorable as cities that have one. Uh, we have a, a very good aspiring rugby team uh, in the Premiership of the Rugby uh, Union, and we have a pretty good cricket team as well, Worcestershire County Cricket Club, which is brought forward a lot of players and even now the current Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan played for Worcester uh, in his youth. So uh, yeah, a lot to see. It's a lovely place. Yeah, you'd be very welcome. 
Well, unfortunately, I don't, I'm not a football fan myself. Um, I don't see much point in cricket either. But certainly the sound of the lovely period properties in Worcester is definitely a reason, reason to, to come up there and have a look around. Um, so you've been in heating all your life. There must be something about it that you absolutely love. Um, just tell me a little bit about why you love going to work and what does a day in your life look like at work? Uh, today, well, nowadays it's obviously different to the norm. Um, but yeah, I've worked at Worcester uh, since 1986, and we, we had some very sad news actually the weekend. The founder of Worcester Engineering, as it was then called, and more latterly it became Worcester Heat Systems, and finally Worcester Bosch Group. Uh, unfortunately, the founder, a marvellous guy called Cecil Duckworth, passed away on uh, Sunday. Uh, the eight, grand old age of 83, but he certainly oh. left a legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a remarkable man, and I, I joined Worcester in uh, in the early in the mid 80s rather, when there was probably 80 or 90 employees. Then it was, certainly wasn't anywhere near the largest employer in Worcester, uh, and it was really exciting. I, I was a heating engineer and an apprentice heating engineer pre, prior to that for eight years in total. Uh, and then joined this uh, young boiler manufacturer, um, which was dwarfed by all the renowned brands in those days. Many of them are no longer trading, uh, but Thorn EMI and Myson and other very old-fashioned, unique sort of British brands uh, were the mainstay of the heating industry in those days. So Worcester was like challenging these people. And... Uh, I think when I joined, we had a market share of about 2%, something like that. It was very tiny. Uh, and it was such an exciting time because the uh, owner was quite a pioneer, this, the same Cecil Duckworth, quite a visionary. And it was him who, whilst in the army, uh, he chanced upon combination boilers, which are now wide scale, you know, they're everywhere. But at the time, they, they were unheard of in the UK. And so Cecil, uh, wanting to sort of leapfrog the existing competition out there, thought he'd design a combination boiler. Uh, and for those who don't know, a combi boiler is literally a, a central heating boiler, which heats water instantly from the water mains. So you don't have a hot water storage cylinder. And nowadays, there's about 75% of homes in the UK have a combi boiler. But back in the day, he was fighting against water regulation requirements and various other restrictions on uh, preventing you directly connecting the water mains to a hot water boiler. Because so, I suppose we forget as well that oil was originally used, wasn't it? In it was, yeah. That's how Cecil broke yeah. uh, into the market. He had mm. two ideas in mind. He was either going to make a self-service petrol pump or an oil-fired <laughs> boiler. <laughs> uh, and he borrowed £300 off his wife and he designed and developed an oil-fired boiler uh, in a very old rickety shed in Worcester in 1962. Uh, and that's how he started, literally you know, making these boilers as one-offs and trying to sell them uh, until he came, he thought, right, gas is the future, really. North Sea gas had been found uh, and gas was the likely f source of heating for inner cities and whatever. So he wanted to get into gas, but not doing it the traditional way. 
hence this combi boiler. So when I joined, it was a really exciting time and still is to be quite honest. Now we've got other things on the agenda as well, but we were, mm -hmm. we were against the tide almost, you know, trying to pioneer combi boilers. Now, you said a little magical word there. You said apprentice. And yes. um, J James is really, really interested in the apprenticeship schemes. And he's actually coached a couple of apprentices at Callaway. So, James, I'm sure you have a little question about apprenticeships there for Martin. Yes, Martin. Yes. As, uh, as Heather said, you know, it's something that uh, is close to my heart for our particular industry. And I think there's a, um, a lot to be said for um, someone coming on board as an apprentice and, and obviously, you know, progressing up through the ranks. And um, we talk a lot about not just property, but also your sector and electricians and plumbers in general, you know, where people were all uh, being maybe deciding to go to university. But now there's a, you know, quite rightly a bit more of a movement and a rebalance in people looking at other career options and apprentices seems to be coming back into uh, the mainstream of people giving consideration it is is it, do you still have that within your within within Worcester Bosch is it is it still something that that, that your that, that, that your company drive yes very much yeah, yeah. Um, this industry is quite unique I guess the heating industry it, there really is no other way into it other than being an apprentice right um, it's reduced in time nowadays to what it was. Mine back in the day was a five-year apprenticeship. Uh, nowadays, it's between two and three years, depending on which NVQ level you take it to. Mm. Uh, but in my day, it was city and guilds and advanced city and guilds. Uh, but the heating and plumbing industry has been a long uh, promoter of apprentices. Um, even at our factory today, we've got probably 60 apprentices um, every year we take on a batch, yeah. particularly as service engineers. We find the retention rate when you've actually trained and subsidised and paid for uh, these trainees as they were to become a fully qualified engineers, their loyalty is, is incredible. Uh, that's and good, unlike that's good, yeah, because retention is so important after you put that oh, major investment in, isn't it? You know, yeah. Lots of lots of not just money, but other other team and other colleagues' man hours. You know, it's 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 a lot. You know, and you want longevity, yeah. don't you, with people? Indeed, there's a, a extreme loyalty we found. Um, also, um, the fact that apprentices, once you've done an apprenticeship in whatever it may be. Uh, I saw some figures recently where something like 93% of people who have gone through an apprenticeship continue to work in that discipline. Mm. And university is nothing like that. You go to university and take a degree in whatever it might be and end up doing a job which that degree hasn't contributed towards yeah, at all. Sector. Yeah, Let me tell you about a thrill. Those are wonderful figures and obviously, you know, it's something that we, we like to promote as well um, within our industry. Um, now, apprenticeships all well and good. How has the industry changed since you joined Martin? It's a very um, dynamic industry in that respect. Um, there's been probably three or four significant milestones in my 30 odd years at Worcester real industrial changes. Um, the combination boiler concept was one uh, where that has gone from as little as 2% market share back in the 80s 
to uh, around 75 to 80% market share nowadays. So there's 17 million homes out there with a combi boiler installed and 6 million with other types of systems. Okay. So that probably is the, the biggest uh, one in the 80s. Uh, then we had numerous little things going on through the 90s, you know, the, the um, take-up of things like push-fit plastic pipework rather than the traditional <laughs> copper or steel pipework. Um, but probably in the early 2000s when condensing boilers were made a requirement, uh, so this is back in 2003, it was announced that in 2005, any boiler that you fit must be of a high efficiency condensing type. So we had about two years to prepare for this eventuality. Um, and we managed you know, successfully to transition from non-condensing boilers, uh, which had an efficiency of about 78, 79%, to condensing boilers, which are, are up and around the 90% efficiency figure. And I guess, oh, sorry, Heather, I'll cut no, you no, off. No, 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 not at all. No, <laughs> I think what, what, you're, what, you know, what you're explaining is what happens in a lot of industries and businesses. You need to have that innovation running through it, don't you, to make sure that, A, it keeps up with the times and is actually looking at legislation and, you know, what people want as well. And, and from my perspective, when I look at the gas industry now and the boiler industry, my goodness me, there's so much choice. And even the fact that the advertising is far more sort of, uh, how shall I say, more popularised now as well. You know, you look at it all and you think, gosh, that really has come a long, a long, long way. Um, yeah. But our awareness of carbon emissions is obviously rising. Legislation, in fact, did the, um, was it not announced a couple of days ago that we would have net zero emissions by 2030 instead of 2050? Yeah, it's made a, a subtle... Various cities have announced that, I know. Worcester, oh. where I live, for instance, they've set a target of zero carbon, net zero carbon, by 2030, which is impossible. It won't happen, I know that. It, it's more a bit of a flag-waving exercise, I suspect, there, trying to be a pioneer. Manchester, I believe, have done something similar. Earlier than 2050, which is the... Uh, legal requirement we've signed up to. So certain little, you know, enclaves, cities, regions, etc., may have differing figures. Uh, but 2050 is the one that we, as a heating industry, are, are working towards. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's probably the third most significant thing of the three you've asked. What is, uh, you know, the decarbonisation uh, target is far-reaching. Um, and technology-wise, we could do it rather promptly um, but actually financially and from a homeowner perspective and a user ability perspective um, those are other factors we have to bear in mind to whatever policy decision is made at the moment singularly the biggest contribution the heating industry made to reducing carbon emissions was that move to condensing boilers in 2005 uh, a lot of people are perhaps not aware that the boiler market in the UK is around 1.6 to 1.7 million boilers every year. So there's some 23 million homes on the gas grid, about 1.5 million not on the gas grid, uh, and the boiler needs replacing roughly every 12 to 15 years. So that's the run rate, 1.5, 1.6 million annually 
So replacing that amount of boilers annually and making them 10 to 15% more efficient, that was the biggest contribution so far we've made to reducing carbon. Yeah, so Martin, when we just, look at... Just, yeah, go on, James. Can I just come in there, just elaborate on that? Sorry, yeah, I mean, obviously, Martin, you know, you've been in the industry for, you know, you know, over 40 years. And, you know, when you hear that the government has announced that by 2025, they're going to uh, ban all, all new homes being installed with gas boilers, um, I mean, do you, do you think that the consumers are aware of the, the government's intentions? And, and would you say that the industry is ready for, for that type of uh, uh, piece of legislation? Um, probably a no to both of those. Yeah. Um, you know, central heating, it's not on the forefront of everybody's mind. It, it's, a, it's unimportant until it's wrong, then it's the end of the world, of course. Yeah. And the, yeah. we can't do without heating and hot water. Do without heating for certain times of the year, but hot water every day of the year, you want hot water. So, yes, unless somebody's pushed and made to change the appliances they have to something they're not quite used to, uh, then the public are generally just not really paying too much attention to it. But from the house building fraternity, they are very aware of it, there's no question. I have discussions with all, make, well, as a team, with the national house builders and regional house builders. They are aware of this impending uh, target. Uh, They've not been quite as prescriptive as saying they will ban gas boilers and gas central heating. Um, the way they build houses today is generally on a carbon emission rating. So they will set the carbon you're allowed to emit from that property so tightly that it will be impossible to fit a gas-fired boiler to heat that house. So they do it by default, really. They don't actually back a technology. They just set a figure that you can't exceed. But it will be a, a big change because some of the house builders uh, are still building houses today to the 2006 building regulations. Right. And uh, that, I don't think, is right. You know, you're no. selling a house at 2020 prices built with 2006 technology. Um, you know, there has to be some tightening up of these regulations to stop that loophole uh, being allowed. Effectively, if you start the site, uh, then that's it. You can continue to build uh, the remaining houses on that site to the regulations they were approved to. I understand that Bayes, the government department, want to uh, prevent that loophole. And once you've started it, there will be a period of time to which you must complete it. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you may have to start building to the next set of regulations, which will become, the, uh, ultimately, they will become zero carbon. Uh, but the, the proposal on the table is to reduce carbon emissions from houses built to 2025 regulations uh, by 75 to 80% when compared to a house built to the 2013 regulations. I can't get my head around these measurements for carbon dioxide. So if we understand like a typical passenger vehicle emits about 4.6 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide per year, what does a tonne of carbon dioxide look like? 
<laughs> I've no idea, to be quite honest. <laughs> I can't help you either, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, is this the reason why a lot of us don't really get it? Because, you know, we, we, you can't see it. I mean, yes, you can see pollution. And, and I think with lockdown, you know, a lot of us realise, well, it's great having no cars on the road. I'm not sure it's been quite so great having these, these sort of pop-up cycle lanes, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. and actually not travelling to and from work etc we haven't been able to go on aeroplanes and that is also responsible for about 12 percent of carbon dioxide emissions from all transport sources and apparently the average household in the uk emits 2.7 tons of carbon dioxide every year just from heating their home so i can understand why worcester bosch has a huge part to play in all of this and um you know but eight well, if we don't know what it looks like, what can we do? And there are some very, very sensible things. You know, how can we encourage people to be more zero carbon educated, but also committed as well? I mean, Martin, you just hit the nail on the head with the condensing boilers. I mean, we've got a 22-year-old... Um, uh, boiler at the moment that really probably needs a, rep a repair and um, you know that's one simple thing that I can do within my household so sh shall we just have a look at the sort of simple ways within a household to reduce CO2 emissions yeah certainly all, yeah what, can you give us a few pointers there Martin yeah, I've got a, uh, an ex-colleague now who's actually a uh, Green Party councillor in Worcester uh, he's uh, one of his unwritten rules with his family were right the central heating doesn't go on uh, unless we're all wearing jumpers and we're still <laughs> feeling the cold <laughs> well that's how it used to be in the 60s in my 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 house where I used to live with my mum and dad <laughs> go and put a jumper on it's not that cold <laughs> I don't, think that's gonna, I, don't, I don't think that's going to win votes. <laughs> no, no, probably not, no. No, but you've, uh, you're not untypical, Heather, with a 22-year-old boiler. Um, we tend to run them to destruction. Uh, we run them until they're irreparable. They've had it. They're, the parts are no longer available or it's leaking water or something like that. And to be honest, they're... they're a new boiler, this is just for you to purchase a boiler now off the shelf, uh, would be about a thousand pounds. Now I know you've got to pay for it to be installed, so you're going to add whatever to that. But I'd be amazed if a new boiler installation uh, in pretty well any property uh, of a domestic size is more than let's say three thousand pounds. So we're being a little frugal when you think that this is going to last us 15 years or so you know some people pay a thousand pound for a new apple phone and it lasts mm, perhaps mm. three years That's or right. something mm. yeah so we, we do undervalue perhaps this workhorse sat in the corner just you know doing its role for 365 days of the year I, don't, I think some of it might well be that our gas bills are so small really uh, there's no there's no incentive for you to be more efficient a lot of the time. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, I know in Germany and other places in Europe, the gas bills are three or four times the cost of what we have in the UK. So to save 10% off, let's say, a £3,000 bill is 
a big deal. To save 10% off our £700 a year bill is hardly a meal out. Mm. So until the bills get higher, and I don't wish that, by the way, uh, I don't think there's any self-made compulsion to do it because financially you're not really getting much better off for doing it. Um, it'll have to be policy and legislation which will make us improve the efficiency and reduce CO2. Uh, and it's starting to happen. You know, Only today I've been reading of a proposal uh, put out by the government for the private rented sector. I don't know whether you were going to come on to this later on, but... Oh, James definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> but, You're you know, prime, we... James. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, James, you would have a vested interest in this, because uh, the, the, today we measure the efficiency of a house in a rather inaccurate way but it's still a guide of how efficient the property is and it's an energy performance certificate that's right mm -hmm. EPC. Yeah. a is wonderful and g is you know probably the worst you can get mm. um, but the current minimum level a private rented property can be is a ban level of e mm. uh, and that came into place in 1980 sorry 2018 so any rented house had to be a minimum of a band E. But the paper on the table is suggesting by 2026 it has to go up to a band of C. C. Mm. Yep. And 2028, if it's a long-standing tenant, so it's 2026 if it's a new tenant uh, taking occupa occupants of the property, 2028 if it's a long-standing existing tenant, you've still got to work around them and raise that property to a band level of C. Now, in the House a few weeks ago, Kwasi Kwarteng, the energy minister, was asked a question by one of the MPs, how many off-gas grid properties are in bands D, E, F and G? And he gave the figure, and it was roughly a million. Then he was asked, OK, how much does it cost to raise the efficiency of a property from a band level of E up to a band level of C, and it was roughly £12,000. Mm -hmm. So to actually say to some of these landlords who may not even get 500 quid a month for some of the properties around Worcestershire, you know, it's not a mm. pricey area, that you've got to spend 12 grand by 2026, that's two years of rental income, to bring your property up to a minimum level, then I think that's really harsh, and I can see many people thinking it's not worth it, I'll dispose of it, I'll sell it. That's right. I mean, that is that is right, Martin. I mean, I think um, I think the thing is, with all these bits of legislation, um, in isolation, they might look potentially something that someone wants to work on, but that is a very small cog in a whole raft of additional pressures that are put on uh, landlords if, in this instance, but obviously some homeowners may have an issue there as well. And ultimately, what will happen, you've hit the nail on the head, people will exit the market uh, yeah. because they won't be able to afford to do it. I think there's this misconception that people have got incredibly, incredibly deep pockets. As you say, not all areas have get, get the rental values that some, some, some big cities do. Um, and so what, what the people that are going to be hurting here are the tenants because there's going to be less stock. And if the stock that is left, there's going to be, it's going to, they have this, the rents are going to increase. But then we've got the other issue in, the, in a city that we work in. We've got lots of conservation properties, lots of uh, listed properties. And even now, when they raised it uh, in 2018 to uh, a band E uh, 
or above, you have to go on, in, on, on an, uh, and apply to be exempt for, uh, on the exemption register. I mean, that, that is a, 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 a system that doesn't give you confidence that actually you've got that exemption and you have to get all sorts of people involved to make sure that you're actually, you know, uh, telling the truth, if you like. And, yeah. um, you know, it's going to just, it's going to cause problems. And I think everyone wants to work towards improving, but the jump from an E to a C, uh, and as you say, the cost involved to do that, um, well, it's going to frighten a lot of people, yeah. Well, we've just had the Green Homes grant, haven't we? The voucher scheme, um, yes. which is redeemable to the 31st of March next year. Now, I've, I've been having a look at that and just wading through those forms and sometimes it, you, you, you give up before you even get there. <laughs> um, you know, but you also need local suppliers. We've now got lockdown. So trying to get that work done, it's a little bit like the stamp duty holiday that we've got. You know, that has caused huge queues in the conveyancing um, process. It's causing huge problems with people trying to move. So I think we've all got to be a little bit more realistic about how quickly these things can be brought in. And we know, don't we, James, from just the last couple of years, all the, you know, the new legislation that's been brought in, it causes havoc amongst, um, well, not real havoc, we get through it, but sometimes we'd like a little bit more <laughs> of, a, of a time scale to bring in this legislation. Yeah, you don't want to fight um, people off, I mean, you know, no. very briefly, I mean, one of the examples when we talk about them bringing in these revised parameters for EPCs or boilers or, 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 or similar, um, some very, very often other departments haven't actually caught on to the fact that we, we have an example on a property where a landlord decided to go down the route of having an alternative heating system put in rather than a gas boiler because that's the sort of route that the government are sort of implying is going to happen in the future a new EPC was done and it, it, it basically brought it down to a level that wasn't lettable and one of the advisories to get it up to a level was install a gas boiler. I mean, <laughs> you know, because the, 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 the government parameters on the EPC um, uh, platform that they have to, you know, put in the calculations just didn't take into consideration the super duper electrical uh, appliances and heating systems that we put in that were very high rating spec but mm. spec but um mm. the, the the result was well you need gas boy needs to go in so if we're going to go down this road and people are going to spend a lot of money um it really does need to make sure people are, are spending it in the right area to get past <laughs> you know? well, i applaud the green homes grant scheme i can see and i've met with rishi sunak who was a delightful man to me he actually came to our factory in july of this year um, because it, it was mainly to announce that this scheme was coming out and he was wanting to see our hydrogen boiler, which we'll probably move on to. But um, I applaud the money. It's a big investment. It's, um, but it is tied up in bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, Heather, you mentioned the forms you have to fill in. Mm. Um, the installers, uh, they have to be Trustmark registered. And it's almost an echo of the Green Deal, which wasn't a great success either. So to be on the Green Deal scheme, you had to be micro certification scheme registered, MCS registered. Trustmark is not dissimilar. You have to pay an annual subscription to a, a sort of certif an oversight body. That's probably a more accurate way of phrasing it. 
and most of the installers in the heating industry are one-man bands. Uh, they are on their own and they may have an apprentice, they may have some office help, but by and large they do it themselves uh, and do the paperwork themselves or perhaps their wife might, might help out or the husband might help out. Um, but the paperwork and insurances and things like that needed to be Trustmark registered make most installers just turn their backs to it. So yeah. consequently, I believe there's been 36,000 uh, applications for green home grant measures, but there's less than 1,100 installers uh, registered to be able to do this. Many of them will be quite largest companies because insulation, double glazing, things like that are generally done by national or at least regional companies. But heating installations are still really done by one-man bands, mostly. So I can understand the frustration of the consumer thinking, I'll do my bit here, I'll, I'll claim for the £5,000 maximum I'm allowed to. And then they're offered an installer uh, who lives 150 miles away. 97.2 FM, Radio Revert. Um, so I just wanted to, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Let's Talk Property with Heather Hilda Darling. My guest today is Martin Bridges of Worcester Bosch and my co-host is James Duffy. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, so if we go back to the 10 ways to reduce your CO2 emissions, James, what, what are you doing? Are you putting on an extra jumper or are you leaving the uh, heating off a bit longer? <laughs> uh, well, actually, I... I, I, I <laughs> I, I, I don't feel the cold, so I, I, we have this battle at home and also when you are in the office with everyone that feels the cold. But yeah. for, 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 for putting that aside, obviously, um, I actually did have a boiler, uh, a new boiler fitted probably a year ago. And um, obviously you've got the um, the, ther the up-to-date thermostats and, and setting it so it only kicks in when it gets to a certain level. And um, using all those type of... Uh, opportunities and devices to sort of min minimalize um, when it kicks in um, and um, you know not um, leaving windows open while, while, while the heating's on all those sort of little basic things that's where mm. my um, my, my uh, <laughs> to the extent that I look at it but um, I think Martin is right I think you start drawing attention to it when it starts hit when it does hit your pocket from from energy bills and gas bills and um, you know um, those sort of things um, yeah. you take into consideration then more. Well, I, I was actually... Go oh, on, sorry. Martin. Please, uh, no, you there, can. There are some small little tips um, which... Uh, you, heat, heating controls are everything uh, and we, are re we rarely revisit our heating system for any work on it uh, other than perhaps a boiler service until the boiler requires replacing and then we're likely to upgrade the controls to something more sophisticated. But there's nothing stopping you doing that even though you intend to keep with your boiler for another 10 years. Um, James, you mentioned the, the latest thermostats which uh, quite often are internet enabled nowadays. And uh, I know we sell such a thing which is internet enabled and it, it can even, and there are many others out there, which can even individually control the radiators. So we, most radiators, or a lot of them at least, have thermostatic radiator valves on them, which are wonderful. They can just individually uh, temperature control that room. 
Um, but you can actually, with a, to go round everyone, turning them off or up is not something we do very frequently. But if it was on your phone, you had the ability to turn it up or down while sat in your lounge, you'd probably do so. And as we're all going to be working from home, or the majority of us, for a lot longer, uh, then heating the entire house, where ordinarily you'd have all left the house, gone to work, gone to school, um, is going to be more a drag on your gas bills. So just e heating the office space you're occupying throughout the day would be sensible, either by these electronic T, uh, thermostatic radiator valves or just a localised heater, you know, an electric heater or something like that would probably be less expensive than running the whole house where ordinarily you wouldn't do. Mm. Um, one, of the, one of the questions I have been asked um, previously, uh, uh, and it might be a good opportunity to ask you this, Martin, is that the, the people get mixed messages about is it more cost effective to, in the winter months when it is continuously cold near enough to keep your heating on at a lower level more, more throughout the day rather than it going on in the morning and on in the evening and then heating up the whole house again. Is there, is there any type of best advice there or does it, does it depend on the system and, and the house or is there a general rule of thumb there? Um, no, there are, some, uh, there are some fors and against with that. Uh, older properties which don't have a great thermal mass within them, they have perhaps no cavity wall insulation, so they're leaching heat out all the time. That would be uh, not a sensible thing to do to keep the heating on when you weren't perhaps needing it. Um, the, obviously the main way of saving energy is not to put any energy in there in the first place. Uh, but if it's got a high thermal mass uh, and it's a fairly new build property, so anything from, I don't know, 10 to 15 years and younger, um, then there is some, uh, some sense perhaps in running the heating at, let's say, 21 centigrade when you're sat in the lounge at night or, you know, just generally uh, relaxing and perhaps setting that back to, say, 16 or 17 centigrade throughout the day uh, when you're either not in the house or you are, but you're, you know, busying around and not really sat there feeling the cold. So it depends on the structure of the property, a lot of it. Uh, but for the majority of properties, which in the UK, some 80% were built before 1960, it, it wouldn't be financially sensible to do that. It's likely as well that the radiators in your home have been oversized slightly. Uh, to account for intermittent use so they will heat up the home promptly quickly um, if you've got underfloor heating it's probably best to leave that on because that takes several hours to warm the concrete up it's sat in uh, so I guess for the majority it'd be wiser to turn the heating off when you're either not in, totally off I mean, we do it at night as well most of the time, the heating goes totally off at night, yet when you wake up in the morning it's, it's relatively warm, probably takes 45 minutes to an hour to heat the home up from cold, um, that would be cheaper to do than leaving the heating running for 8 or 9 hours when you don't truly need it. Well, you might as well go out and run along one of these empty cycle lanes instead of sitting waiting for the heating to come on. You, you've got a, something against these, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
well, they're taking them back down again in my area. Um, <laughs> Martin, when we spoke back in September, you were just talking about Gas Safety Week that was coming up. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned um, that biomethane gas was being injected into the grid from anaerobic digestion systems. How does, mm. that, ta how does that tally with eating less red meat? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, actually, on that one. <laughs> it certainly makes total sense when it comes to uh, uh, natural gas consumption because um, uh, bio uh, anaerobic digestion systems and the creation of biogas is, is always from waste sources, uh, black bin waste. It can be at sewerage systems, sewerage farms, etc., where they're taking the methane from that and inject, treating it and injecting it back into the grid. So it is, you know, pretty zero carbon, what's going in there. Regrettably, we haven't enough of it. That's our problem. Um, at best, even if there were double, treble the amount of anaerobic digestion systems that we currently have, I don't think we'd ever get to anything around 10% of the gas consumption that we need from biogas. So it would help though, there's no question it would help and we should use more of it. Um, long term though, I, the, the general direction is to decarbonise the fuel or the gas. Um, we know people are hard to move, they love their boilers. Boilers are a great system, we've been running them for 50 years and we're all used to them. And uh, using anything else isn't out of the question, but it requires a lifestyle change. So if we could green the grid a little bit like unleaded petrol did, um, then that would be a seamless transition to the consumer. They would know no difference. And of course, there's talk about biomethane, that's happening today. But the real long-term talk is to substitute methane with hydrogen gas. Right, um, so you did mention that little hydrogen boilers a couple of minutes ago. Can you just talk us through that? Sure, yeah. Um, it's good timing because Boris tomorrow <laughs> is uh, <laughs> announcing a 10-point plan uh, for reducing carbon. And I'm reliably told that hydrogen features heavily on there. So our work on this started about five years ago. And Bayes, one of the government departments in charge, really, of uh, decarbonisation, um, they're pretty good. They were understanding that to go into people's properties and get them to change the way they live, even change the property sometimes, is a big ask. So if we could take the carbon out of the gas instead, uh, wouldn't that be more sensible? So hydrogen gas was the one which was proposed and we started work on a hydrogen firing boiler in 2015, soon after the discussions, and we actually fired it in December 2017 at a test facility in Cheltenham. Uh, we didn't have the facility to store hydrogen at our laboratories at that time, we now have, uh, but at that point we didn't. So was, we used a test house in Cheltenham, about 30 miles away from Worcester. And the progression, the, the development has been steadily taking place. We were recipients, uh, along with Baxi Heating, another boiler manufacturer, uh, we were, became part of a uh, hydrogen 
funded scheme by the government, a £26 million fund of money or grant, pot of money was put together to investigate hydrogen and the feasibility of it. So we received £1.5 million, as did Baxi, and we were asked to develop uh, a boiler each. Uh, and then initially it was thought, oh, it's easy, we can do that, we've done it. But then, of course, like I mentioned before, you have to factor in other social economic things. So initially we proposed, here we go, then here's a hydrogen boiler that you can use. Uh, and there was a desktop study undertaken on the city of Leeds as that is being perhaps the most suitable city to convert to hydrogen. And there were some 60,000 homes, I think. So if we were to go into the city of Leeds, the industry en masse, change every single boiler in the city of Leeds that year, and sometimes we'd be throwing away two-year-old boilers, sometimes we'd be throwing away 20-year-old boilers, but we'd replace 60,000 boilers in that one year, then every heating engineer in the city of Leeds would really have no work for the next 15 years till the new one was needed. Oh. So, <laughs> other than the odd... Well, there's always pluses and minuses to everything you do, isn't there? Oh, dear. There is. So it was thought, oh, gosh, that's not going to work very well. That's going to unbalance oh. things a lot there. So we then proposed a hydrogen-ready boiler. And this is what Bayes have really uh, taken to. So both Baxi and Worcester have developed a hydrogen-ready boiler. So we're lobbying that the government propose from a date, and it could be as soon as 2025, if they accept, that only hydrogen-ready boilers can be placed onto the market. Now, I know there's no hydrogen around at the moment, but these boilers can run on the natural gas supply all of their life if necessary. But if you've got a hydrogen-ready boiler in the home, a bit like a high-definition television was, you couldn't get a high-definition program for some years, but you, your TV was ready for it. Uh, the boiler could be the same. So you buy a hydrogen-ready boiler. They are likely to cost about... 50 to 100 pounds more than a current natural gas boiler so nothing really you know it's pretty mm. cost neutral and your home is now prepared for hydrogen and should hydrogen come along in 10 years time then a small conversion in our case it's just three small components costing about 100 quid and an hour of an engineer's time and you have hydrogen zero carbon boilers running in your property and there are Companies, and I've seen the appliances, they've developed a hydrogen cooker as well. I have seen a hydrogen gas fire, but I, I don't know whether that will be as uh, necessary as perhaps a cooker, because I know you can get electric cookers, but obviously professionally most people, most chefs in kitchens want to see the flame and use a, 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 you know, a proper flame on the hob uh, to cook things with. And we're now into the trial and demonstration stage. So on the 22nd of September, our boiler was fitted into a hydrogen test site at RAF Spade Adam in Northumberland. So they built three houses specifically for this trial, this demonstration. Our boiler is in one of them. The Baxi boiler is in the other end of this, three, this row of three terraced houses. 
And the energy minister and, uh, you know, scientific journalists and people like that are, are going up there when uh, lockdown was rather to see this and publicise it a bit more. There's going to be a cooker in there as well. And then we move to a larger public trial in the, the town of, um, well, it's Fife in Scotland. It's Scotland, place, yeah. I always pronounce this wrong. I think it's pronounced Levermouth or Levermouth in Fife. Scottish Gas Networks have done this fantastic job. They've got a, uh, like a street or a cul-de-sac and they've put under the ground a hydrogen pipe literally running side by side down the road next to the natural gas pipe under the ground and they're inviting 300 tenants to opt in or not, it's their choice, uh, into a hydrogen world. So they would have a hydrogen boiler, cooker and fire fitted and that is you know a, a big trial, 300 sites and it's a great news story as well because the hydrogen is coming from on or offshore wind, a mixture of both, and uh, an electrolyzer, a device which creates elect uh, hydrogen from water and electricity, is generating the hydrogen. So it's a true zero carbon uh, situation. And if that's successful, it moves then on to an even bigger trial of some thousands of houses in the northwest, uh, roughly the Liverpool, Chester sort of area is where it's proposed. So three trials all in all, which will give the government then enough evidence to say yes or no. Do you know what, Martin, while you were speaking there, my head was going back many, many years to when I took my, uh, I can't remember whether it was chemistry or something else, um, O-levels, and the symbols H2O and CO2 are sort of getting all mingled in my mind. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, hydrogen is a gas, um, has that therefore got some um, link with H2O, which is water, and the oxygen parts? I mean, is this, is this where we could sort of use the reusing and recycling hydrogen for other uses as well? Yeah, there's two known ways of creating hydrogen. Ironically, one of them is from the, uh, a chemical process called the steam reformation of natural gas. So this isn't quite as good a story to tell here. So this is uh, where we, <laughs> we use methane or natural gas and through a chemical process called steam reformation, we extract the hydrogen from the methane. But unfortunately, we still have carbon dioxide to deal with. And you may have heard the expression carbon capture use and storage, CCUS it gets abbreviated to. No, it's uh, not in our daily vocabulary, I'm no, afraid, Martin. No, that's your challenge for today, to slip that one into a, a sentence somewhere. But it, it's, rarely, it's a technology rarely used in the UK, but it is being talked about uh, and has been talked about. I wouldn't be shocked if it's announced tomorrow by Boris. Right. But at this hydrogen generation facilities, we will have to capture this carbon and it literally gets, metaphorically speaking, swept under the carpet. Okay. It gets buried in the sea, sequestered in some of the salt caverns uh, we've got around the coastlines. And of course, people aren't liking that. Uh, there are new technologies coming out uh, every day, literally, to help dispose of this. So I 
at best at the moment, we will probably reckon 60, if we were to change tomorrow, 60 or 70% of the hydrogen we would need would have to come from the steam reformation of methane. And the remainder, remainder would come from electrolysis of water, uh, as we described earlier, through the use of electricity. And you could use the overgeneration of electricity we get from nuclear power stations. And at night, of course, we have an overproduction of electricity in the grid, hence the off-peak tariffs you can get. So there are uh, good stories to tell and some slightly not so good. However, at the point of use, that's the critical bit, at the point of use in people's homes, there is no carbon dioxide and no carbon monoxide coming from a burnt hydrogen gas. And that's, you know, that's the utopia. Whoa, that's made me feel a lot happier now. <laughs> now, Martin, you were talking about overgeneration. I'm going to think about the future generations. And I found on, um, I think it was either your website, the Worcester Bosch website, or maybe um, somewhere I found it, Picture a Greener Future. And it's a little book for, um, yes, the future generation, teaching them about how to be kind to our planet. Um, and it's, it's lovely because some of the little mix and match energy facts that it's got in there are really very simple. You know, it says never leave a television and you've got to choose what the answer is. Yes. Um, only boil the amount you need as, you know, to make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Um, so, you know, our future generations are really important and, and educating them right from a tiny, tiny age to shut doors, to shut windows, to turn off lights. Um, I can remember my dad always saying, you know, oh, for goodness sake, Heather, shut the door and things like that. Actually, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It does, and that, that book is remarkable. That's 20 years ago we uh, created that with Bobby the Boiler and I Solar know. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love Bobby the Boiler and Solar oh, Sam. Geez. I think they're brilliant. So we, that's something that I'd like to obviously um, let people know about. But you have some boilers in some very illustrious places, don't you? Are you allowed to tell us where you've got your oh, boilers? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's numerous uh, um celebrities and uh, stars uh, we have them in the queen's properties hence we we are lucky enough to be a royal warrant holder uh, the boilers are installed at sandringham uh, and i was fortunate enough to uh, visit them and uh, have a look at them once and had a, a semi-private tour of sandringham which i was very uh, i made my mum the envy, uh, very envious, because uh, I was shown into the room which you see on the TV sometimes, where oh, they open wow. their Christmas presents and things like that. It's, uh, oh, but does she have a boiler serviced every year? Oh, she does, yeah. That's all looked after for her. Um, but we have them on other royal properties as well. Um, but we have many of the, uh, you know, we, we've probably got some 7 million boilers installed. We've got about 30% of the market. Mm -hmm. So some 7 million or more homes uh, have, have, have them installed. And it is unusual when somebody rings up with a problem with a boiler or they just want it serviced. And they happen to be, you know, somebody like Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin 
<laughs> who I know has got one of our boilers there. Oh, gosh. Uh, you, do, you know, it's not always a member of their staff who ring up. <laughs> it's from time to time the real person. <laughs> well, listen, it's been absolutely fantastic. We're nearly um, out of time, actually. But before we close, I'm going to... I Supposing I'm planning on drawing up my own plan of action to zero carbon emission, my home. Martin, can you give me your top three golden nuggets for doing that? Definitely insulation. So fabric first is, uh, I think, a, a sensible thing to consider. It is difficult to, to do any of this, much of this yourself. So cavity wall even solid wall insulation that the extreme that's very tough to do and you need professionals but roof loft space insulation and uh, that's one which uh, is really pretty uh, easy to do yourself and obviously uh, you can acquire the stuff yourself i think it's available on the green homes grant scheme anyhow if you should so wish but the roof is one of our big areas where we lose a lot of heat and we're so reluctant to do anything with it as well. And it is an issue because I do recall British Gas once, part of their eco requirements, they were trying to almost give insulation away. And they invited people to apply. And they even came to the stage because they had so few applicants. They even offered the service where they would remove all the belongings from the roof, put the insulation down, put all the belongings back in the roof, and they still had hardly anybody wanting to take it up. <laughs> Because it's just a pain to do. But mm. insulating the roof is a good one. Smaller things you can do, like putting foil on the wall behind the radiators, uh, would stop the heat transferring so quickly through the wall uh, and obviously getting lost to outside. Mm -hmm. uh, getting your boiler service, getting the controls right, flushing the heating system out professionally. So the water which transfers the gas heat or the oil flame, whichever you want to call it, into uh, the radiators and pipework, uh, if that water is contaminated and full of sludge and looks discoloured and horrible, then you are losing a lot of efficiency there. So simply flushing and cleansing the heating system, certain tests have shown that it can be 6 or 7% improvement in efficiency for doing something as innocent as that making sure the radiators are fully free of air so they're hot at the top as well as at the bottom uh, is another simple thing just by taking venting the air out of the radiator and i guess using the heating controls properly i know so many people who have the same program on a saturday sunday monday tuesday wednesday uh, rather than having them separated and in normal times you know you're out of the house monday tuesday wednesday all day uh, mm -hmm. On Saturday and Sunday, you're there most of the day, let's say. So use the timer uh, to a more attuned to your lifestyle a bit more. Oh, that's brilliant. James, what, which, which three um, tips are you going to take from Martin today? Oh, God, there's so many, but... Uh, You've only got 60 seconds. OK, <laughs> uh, I'm going to listen out for what Boris may or may not announce tomorrow within this area. Uh -huh. um, the importance of definitely servicing the boilers and gas safety. And I think to keep making sure that I am making sure that everyone I come into contact with is aware of the 2025 date for potentially um, the restrictions on new homes and um, the gas boilers. 
Well, that's a relief. I thought you said you were going to start wearing your woolly jumpers in the office, but there we go. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Martin Bridges of um, Worcester Bosch and James Duffy from Callaway's Estate Agents. And I will put all the details in our little blog for you all to read and catch up on as we're out of time. So thank you for listening. See you soon. Bye for now.